It's time for Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, inviting the atheist, agnostic, and skeptic to examine for themselves the evidence for the Christian faith. We are all limited by what we do not know and by the things we think we know but are not true. Dr. Joe Mott earned his Ph.D. at LSU and was a distinguished math professor at Florida State University for 38 years, helping to write three math textbooks and authoring over 30 research articles in math. He is now the host of this radio program, Defending and Commending the Faith. Here is Joe Mott. Hello to all listening today. I appreciate your participation in the program. In the last two episodes, I have discussed the devil's tactics and his character. Satan attempts to hide his evil works in a cloak of goodness. But the discerning can see through the subterfuge. Different segments of the world's society functions according to Satan's devilish schemes. Atheistic communism, for example, parades under the guise of helping the poor working person. Make no mistake about it, the goal of socialism is communism. Yet the Democratic Party in the USA is hell-bent on turning our nation to socialism, as if socialism is a worthy aspiration. No mention of the millions slaughtered and enslaved by communist regimes in the 20th century. In the USA, the liquor industry boasts of the schools that are built by their tax money. And the gambling industry brags about their contributions to education. No mention of the sorrow and tragedy for families caused by alcohol and gambling. 1 Corinthians 10 Verse 13 tells us, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape, so that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, flee idolatry. The Greek word translated temptation here is pirasmos. The book of James tells us that trials and tests and temptations are inevitable. In the New Testament, the word translated trials slash tests slash temptations come from the same Greek word pirasmos. Here is where we must interpret this verse in light of other scriptures. The difference between tests and temptations is that tests are external and outside of our control, and temptations are internal and within our control. Satan tempts us in order to seduce us to sin, but God tests us to see if we will be faithful to his word. Paul warns Christians to shun idolatry, because idolatry is the most heinous affront to the one true God. We cannot fall for Satan's temptation if we cling steadfastly to God. 
Satan and his agents can tempt us by promoting destructive thoughts in our mind. But permit me to caution you that not all contrary thoughts come from a demonic agent. Contrary thoughts could come from our own mistaken beliefs and expectations. Jesus taught that truth has freeing power in John chapter 8, verses 30 through 32. God looks for and desires truth in the inward parts. That's found in Psalm chapter 51, verse 6. So what are we to do? Well, I suggest we replace destructive thoughts with truth and then forgive yourself for your failures and then allow God to forgive you for all of your sins by believing in Jesus. Paul recognizes the crafty and deceitful wiles of Satan and shows how God limits Satan so that he cannot by sheer force cause the Christian to yield to his temptations. It seems that God knows the amount of testing one can endure. And in love, God forbids Satan to go beyond that limit. Job's trials illustrate that point. Believers in Christ are liberated from bondage to the devil by Christ's victory over him and his demonic forces. That can be documented by considering Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. But unbelievers in Christ are not so liberated. Scripture clearly proclaims the destiny for Satan. First, Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15, informs us that through death, Christ might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. First John chapter 3, verse 8 also tells us, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Nevertheless, while believers in Christ are liberated from bondage to Satan, the unredeemed are still held in subjection to him and are subject to live following the devil's God-opposing will. Second, Revelations chapter 20 verses 1 through 3 states that during the millennium, Satan will be bound for 1,000 years and cast into the abyss. Following a, a short period of freedom, he will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone to be tormented forever. In Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. This is what Jesus had in mind when he said to the goats on his left hand, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In Matthew 25, verse 51. The devil will be destroyed, and those who follow him will share his fate. After taking a temporary detour to 
described the three enslaving forces, the world, the flesh, and the devil, the Apostle Paul returns to his primary thought in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where he has been describing the state of the unredeemed. Remember, the unredeemed are spiritually dead and enslaved by the three enslaving forces. One cannot fully comprehend the greatness of God's power of salvation until we realize that man by nature is spiritually dead and enslaved by Satan. We cannot understand the upside of the gospel until we observe the downside of man's condition. Without the bad news of the consequences of sin, we will not appreciate the good news of what God has done for us in the gospel. The positive is deprived of its worth if there is no negative. After Paul's prior discussion of these verses, one wonders if anything worse could be said about the state of the unredeemed. But the Apostle Paul has one more unpleasant truth to show us. Not only are the unredeemed spiritually dead and enslaved by three enslaving forces, but the unredeemed are by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. In verse 3, what Paul reveals about this third condition of the unredeemed is so horrible that the other descriptions seem to fade in comparison to this condition. The unredeemed are condemned under the curse of God's wrath. In case it's not obvious, God's wrath is nothing to sneeze at. John Stott says, I doubt if there is an expression in Ephesians which has provoked more hostility than this. Some commentators make little or no attempt to understand, let alone defend it. They dismiss it as untenable today. Proverbs 15 verse 1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. It is easy to misinterpret that verse and come to the wrong conclusion and connect God's wrath with the idea of human anger. Stott continues, The meaning of the wrath of God needs to be clarified. In particular, God's wrath is not like man's anger. It is not bad temper, so that it may fly off the handle at any moment over the slightest provocation. It is neither spite, nor malice, nor animosity, nor re revenge. It is never arbitrary since it is the divine reaction to only one situation, namely evil. Therefore, it is entirely predictable. The fact that wrath with or without the words of God does not make God's wrath impersonal 
any more than his grace becomes impersonal when he, the words of, of God are omitted in verses 5 and 8 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. By grace you have been saved. No, the wrath that judges and the grace that saves are both personal. Scripture equally emphasizes the wrath of God and the grace of God. So you may ask, what is God's wrath if it is neither an arbitrary reaction nor an impersonal process? But wrath, as it pertains to God, is, quotes, his personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, says Stott, his refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it. Still someone may object. They may say, how can anyone even talk about wrath today? I know the idea of wrath is in the Bible, in, in obscure places, but surely it is something Christians today are embarrassed about and try as hard as possible to avoid discussing. Why spend time on a difficult and antiquated subject like the wrath of God? There are so many topics that are far more interesting at present. Why not deal with them? Instead, speak of God's love or his mercy, even justice, but not wrath, at least if you want to be taken seriously. The objector is factually wrong about wrath. In the Old Testament, there are more than 20 words used to express God's wrath. More than 600 important passages deal with it. In the New Testament, the two chief terms for wrath are the Greek words thumos and orge. Thumas portrays a human person who suddenly flares up and loses control. This is a person who boils over with anger and blows up, erupting in an ugly outburst that negatively affects other people. Orge, the term for God's wrath in Ephesians 2 verse 3, comes from a root meaning to grow ripe for something, and indicates God's gradually building and intensifying his resolute opposition to sin and evil. Taken together, these passages indicate God's wrath is consistent, controlled, judicial, and not vindictive, not vengeful, not petty, but resolute and uncompromising. That is what makes the wrath of God so frightening. It does not mean that God merely gets angry from time to time, lashes out in anger, and then forgets about it. It is rather that his wrath is an inevitable and growing opposition to all that is opposed to his righteousness. Permit me to close this episode with this illustration. In a middle school, some of the girls have begun to wear lipstick 
and often would put it on in the bathroom. After they put on their lipstick, they pressed their lips to the mirrors, leaving dozens of little lip prints on the mirrors. Finally, the principal of the school decided something had to be done. She called the girls to the bathroom and met them there with the custodian. The principal explained the lip prints caused a major problem for the custodian who had to clean the mirrors every day. To demonstrate how difficult it was, she asked the custodian to clean one of the mirrors. He took out a long-handled brush, dipped it into the toilet, and scrubbed the mirror. Since then, there have been no more lip prints on the mirrors. When we are tempted to sin, if we could only see the real filth we have been kissing, we wouldn't be attracted to it. Thank you for listening to Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, a production of Wave 94 Radio in Tallahassee, Florida. If you have any questions or comments for Joe, please forward them to Doug Apple at Wave 94 at this email address, dougapple at wave94.com. And be sure to join us every Monday evening at 6.45 p.m. on Wave 94 and subscribe through your favorite podcast app, Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott.